Okay, usually when we start off the year, well, well, I don't know, I like do Genesis or something fun like that. Michael said that, um, that we came up with this Bible reading plan. Here's the, here's the inside scoop. He did it. He, wrote, he, he did the whole thing. His whole office was covered with sticky notes. And then he gave me the schedule, and I almost lost it. <laughs> so anyway, we found it, so everything's good. So we're starting the new year off on a book study. So we're just going to do January on this one specific book. And it, it really is not a New Year's type of book. And I've wrestled with God on doing this. Like this is one of these books that I don't, wanna, I don't really want to teach because it's not like a feel-good, happy book. But I couldn't escape it. So therefore, I just really think that God wants our church to hear it. But I also think that what we're going to be getting into applies to the current culture and what everybody is dealing with and what everybody is going through. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Hosea. Hosea is is an Old Testament prophet, uh, contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, He was an interesting, good, and faithful guy. So if you've got your bulletins, check out the cover of the bulletin. There's the cover. It's got a really pretty bride on there. It's a nice picture, eh? Um, you probably would have thought that like we clipped it from like iStock or something like that. No, I actually took this photograph. So I snapped this photograph. And I know it's like really cool and artistic. It didn't look like that. It's by the magic of Luke LeJudice and Jennifer Maglio that it looks really cool and artsy. But the original photo, which I'll show you next week, didn't look anything like that. It was really, like, I, I, I gave this picture to Jen. It's like, I want this on the cover. And, and she's like, I can't work with this. And so she picked out all these other wedding pictures, all these other pretty, and I was just so stubborn. I'm like, just make it work. I want this picture. And she did, and, and her and Luke helped. Um, I took this photo when I was in Israel two years ago. I know, it's been two years. It seems like it was yesterday. Um, But I took this photo, and this is how it happened. I was on a tour bus with the Aglow Prayer Ladies. Now, that's an experience. (laughs) So I'm on a bus uh, with a bunch of intense holy women, and Israel is an amazing place. I I can't quite explain it, but when you are there on the land, you know that the land is sacred. You know that there's holy. It's almost like you're having a religious experience with the real estate. Again, it's, it's really hard to explain. And you know, when you go to the Holy Land, you kind of, in the back of your mind, you're, you're anticipating meeting God because you've read all the Bible stories and you know that this is where it actually took place. This is where Jesus actually stood. You know, this is, this is where Abraham, you know, was given the vision. So all of these things, all of these stories, they can just kind of come flooding back and you, you go to Israel anticipating to know a little bit more about God. And that's a great uh, anticipation to have. It's a great thing to be thinking about. Now, here's a little secret 
into my heart. Um, I love teaching the Word of God. I love preaching. I love leading a church. I love doing all. I love uh, counseling. I love. Let me. I, I I'm okay with counseling. That's why we have Pastor Michael Jones. I'm like, you did what? What's the matter with you? Um, I like doing weddings. I like baptizing. I like leading in communion. I love doing all of these things. But you know what really gets me going is when I encounter God. Like teaching, reading, disciplines, these are all great things. I love them. But when I'm, I'm out, I'm anticipating, I can't wait for my next God encounter, the next, the next breakthrough moment, the next time there is a clear voice from God, there's an answer to prayer, there's a healing. I'm doing carpet time. Uh, carpet time is when you get slain in the spirit and God knocks you out. I'm looking for, I want the next experience. Now, now, living in that constant state of experience isn't necessarily a healthy thing, but it's also but it's the thing that you want to desire. It's the thing that you want to go after. But God teaches us in many different ways. And so sometimes you don't always have these really intense experiences. But again, into my heart, that's what I'm going for. I want to see the next supernatural healing. I love it. And so as I'm on the bus with 50 holy women. And we had some great moments in Israel. I mean, you can't not have a great moment with the Aglow prayer ministry. We had some great worship moments. Like God was moving. God was powerful. But frankly, I've had more intimate encounters with God and the Holy Spirit in this room than I did in Israel in a hotel room. Okay, so I'm just saying, like, God can move here in powerful ways just as he can in Israel. Regardless, I'm like, well, God, I'm in Israel. I want a religious experience, right? Wouldn't you want that too, right? Yeah, like, God, I want to, where's my religious experience? Where's the lightning? Where's the thunder? Where's... Um, where's the dead people getting off the ground? We're all, we're, uh, this is what I'm, um, I'm in Israel. I should see this stuff. But it wasn't happening, okay? It wasn't getting any of the fireworks. And so, as I'm on this bus, we're passing through this city, which was not a tourist city. It was a very uh, dirty, everyday city in Israel. It's a Palestinian city, not a, not a Jewish-Israeli city. It was a Palestinian city. So this is the place where the tour bus does not stop. This is the place that the tour bus kind of drives through kind of fast. And, uh, and so I'm looking out the window, and I see the sign of the city, and it's Cana. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I wonder if this is the Cana of the Bible where Jesus performed his first miracle. And as soon as I thought that thought, our tour guide gets on the intercom and says, hey, guess what, all you Christians, because he wasn't a Christian, he's a Jewish-Israeli ex-military guy that knows everything that you need to know about Israel. He's awesome. And he's like, guess what, you Christians? This is is Cana, the Cana of the Bible, where Jesus performed his very first miracle. So I just thought you guys might want to know that. And it was really cool. I'm like, oh, that's that's awesome. I, I got it right. And then... You know, here's my, here's my pity party. I'm like, God, I would really like to have a spiritual encounter someday in Israel. 
like, you know, feeling sad and sorry and neglected by Jesus or something, crying and stuff. That, that's sarcasm. And, like, but I had that thought. I'm like, man, I've got to really, really be great if I could just encounter you here. And in that moment, I, I thought that thought, driving in a tour bus, not stopped, in the city of Cana, where Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding, that lady pops out of a door. This bride pops out of this door. Like in this dirty, grungy city that is, you know, probably poverty-written. I mean, it just, it just did not look pretty. And then this, this janky door opens up and this bride comes down the stairs looking like that. And that was God's way of saying to me, here's your miracle. Like, this is all you're getting, and it's good enough. Because it's really, really cool that I did this for you. And I did this for you because I love you, and I care for you, and I notice you. I notice and I see you. And we're, I'm drawing you in. Now, so if God can do that for me, I guarantee you God can do it for you too. He can give you, I, I don't know what kind of religious experience you need. Some of you might need to get a radical healing carpet time. Some of you don't need that at all. What you really need is to turn on your ears and listen to the small, still voice of the Lord. God knows exactly what you need. Here's the deal. We think that we know what we need spiritually, but we really don't. God knows what we need spiritually. And we just need to be obedient to what he has to say or to what he has to do. But I was really excited to see this bride. So and, and I took that shot traveling in a bus. So it was taken from my iPhone through a window moving and they made it look that good. And it was a ways away. They even had to zoom in and everything. Book of Hosea is an interesting book because, again, this prophet that God calls, he gives God, a, he gives, God gives Hosea a very specific job description. Now, how many, okay, don't raise your hands. You can raise your hand on the inside. But how many people hate their job? How many people love your job? Think about what you do for a living. Do you like it? Okay. Do you feel... Okay, this is the American dream. This is, an, this is uniquely an American ideology. Do you feel fulfilled by your job? Because we've gotten to the point where we don't even call them jobs anymore. We call them career. The job is the J-O-B that you might have to have to pay the bills, right? But the career is what you, what you feel called to do. Now, God does care about what you do. He does care about what you put your hands to. He's intimately involved in every aspect of our life. But the American dream, and in essence, the American lie is saying that, you, know, you see, you're not going to be fulfilled. Your identity won't be fulfilled until you find that perfect career that fulfills you. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. I mean, it's a, great, it's a great idea. I mean, you don't want to get stuck in a job that you hate. You do want to do a job that you love to do. But the American lie will say that your identity is wrapped up into what you do and not into who you are, all right? Hosea is a book of illustration. It's a metaphor. 
It's highly symbolic. Hosea's entire life, his career, his ministry is an illustration for us. I don't think Hosea got to do what he wanted to do for a job. Like he signed up to be this awesome prophet of God, right? Like, yeah, I want to be a prophet. That sounds cool. I want to call fire down from heaven and slay the prophets of Baal. I want to do all that cool stuff that Elisha did. But let's just listen to what Hosea's job description was and see how fulfilled he felt about this calling. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord began to speak, not at Hosea, but through Hosea, speaking through him. The Lord said to him, go, take yourself an adulterous wife and child of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu. I'll get into that next week. Gomer conceived again, verse 6, and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Roma, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel. Ooh that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah. I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So Hosea is being, in essence, forced to marry a prostitute. How would you like that for your job description? How would you like the Lord to say, I want to make your life an illustration so that other people can learn. I want your life to be an object lesson. Did you think in these terms, do you think that your life could be an object lesson for, for the Lord? Well, Hosea's definitely was. And so he's like, really, God, I have to marry an unfaithful, adulterous woman? God says, yes. Okay, why is that? What, what's the illustration? The illustration is, is that God's people, Israel and Judah, specifically Israel in this case, has been unfaithful, like an like a unfaithful spouse, like an adulterous spouse, a cheating spouse. This is what God's people have been towards God. And so what God is doing is he's pushing their identity. He's pushing on what has taken place and how they have fallen away and how they've gotten things mixed up and all screwed up. Because the relationship is to be the Lord with his wife. In the New Testament, we have something very similar. There is a nuance. There is a bit of a, a difference. In the New Testament, uh, the church of Jesus Christ, us, the church, we are the bride of Christ. In this story, Israel is the wife of the Lord. It's very similar, just some little differences. So Israel has been very unfaithful, and they have sought other gods. 
They have, well, they've done all kinds of things. Let me, let me, what's the point of this? What's the point of this illustration? The number one point of why God would make Hosea marry an unfaithful person, the point of this is to highlight that, of course, Israel is unfaithful, but also to highlight, and if you read this book, if you want to take it on in this coming month, you could actually go home today and read the whole book of Hosea. But here's the catch. Like, if you want to dive in a little bit deeper, um, you need to, to read the whole thing in one sitting. And you can do it. You could do it today. You need to read all of Hosea in one setting because you have to get the big picture on this one because it's some pretty heavy stuff. There's a, there's a lot of positive. There's a lot of negative. And if you just read the negative, you're going to be lost. You need to see God's heart for the whole situation. But here's what the number one thing that he's trying to communicate to Israel and the reason why we have it, he's communicating to us, is that when we fall short, when we sin, when we are not faithful, um, not only does it hurt us, it hurts God's heart. Now that's, okay. Um, back in the day, Mako's not here, so we can talk about this. I know, that's what happens when she doesn't come to church. Um, back in the day in college, I had this girlfriend, um, and it was great. At least I thought it was great. But I had my suspicions. Like there were some little things here and there. There were, you know, dropped calls and, you know, some shady conversations. And I didn't just fall off the turnip truck here. I was able to put two and two together. And I was like, it never came out. It was never, it was never brought into the light. But I could deduce that she was cheating on me. It's like... It's like, okay, I can choose to be ignorant about this or I can come to the realization that she's not being faithful to me. And sure enough, afterwards, the whole thing ended and, um, you know, the truth was never brought to the light, but again, I knew what was going on, right? You just, you just, I just knew what was going on. And the pain... And my heart was so intense. Um, do you remember the first time uh, you ever experienced heartbreak? Somebody broke your heart or broke up with you or dumped you. It usually happens in junior high or high school. Do you remember the moment when somebody really hurt you deeply to the core? And do you remember that like, you physically felt the pain in your heart? You remember how bad that feels? So I was feeling a little bit of that. Uh, probably mostly just, you know, honestly, um, pride, right? Probably hurt my pride more than it hurt my heart. But I was bummed out. I was like, you know, pouting in my pillow all night long, and there was a tear in my beer. I was like upset about it. But the very next day, you know what happened? I'm like, all right, Josh, time to move on. There's more fish in the sea. Just moved right on. Why is that? Well, it's because that relationship was conditional. I shouldn't have been with her in the first place. It was a conditional relationship. Now, God, on the other hand, when he goes into relationships with us, his love for us is unconditional. 
God doesn't like get up the next day when we have betrayed him. He doesn't get up the next day. And, Forget those guys. They're unfaithful. Let's just move on. God does not move on from you. Amen? Isn't that good? Aren't you glad that God's not like me or you? No, he's like God. God is like God. He doesn't just move on when we disappoint him. Now, he's faithful to us to the very end because he has an unconditional love. Most of our relationships, again, are based on conditions. That's how good he is. But this is what you need to get. God still hurts when we betray him, when we walk away. Now, he's a big boy. He's a big God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Like, I mean, God's amazing. But he's still, and this is what we see this coming through in Hosea. When you read it, he still he's, he gets emotional about stuff. Our, our, our words, our deeds, our actions. Now, maybe you're not like, you know, Hosea's wife, but we can betray God in the littlest of things. And those actions, they hurt God's heart. And sin in and of itself hurts God's heart. What we also see in Hosea is that he, he, just, he can't tolerate injustice. He won't. And he can't tolerate, can't tolerate sin. He's a God of justice. And he's a God of mercy. This is a, a bit from Hosea chapter 3, verse 3. And this is in a different translation. This is either passion or message or one of those heretical translations. But... It's a joke, but it's probably true. But anyway, it, 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 says, it says it in a way that I think that we can relate to. Because this talks about Hosea's relationship with his unfaithful wife. Then God ordered me, start all over. Love your wife again. Your wife who is in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people. Do you see it? Do you see that illustration? That's how good and faithful he is. Love her the way that God loves the Israelite people. Even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy, I did it. I paid good money to get her back. Then I told her, from now on, you're living with me. No more whoring, no more sleeping around. You're living with me, and I am living with you. The people of Israel are going to live a long time, stripped of security and protection, without religion and comfort, godless and prayerless. But in time, they will come back, these Israelites, come back looking for their God and their King David. They'll come back chastened to reverence before God and his good gifts, ready for the end of the story, the, the story of his love. God's relationship with us is one of salvation and of restoration. No matter how far away we've traveled, no how far away that we've drifted, he's always going to bring us back. He's always going to restore us. 
Uh, he's always going to save us. Uh, Hosea's actual name translates into salvation. This is the book of salvation, if you want to think about it in the big picture. The reason why you need to read this in one sitting, because if you don't, you might miss this part. You might put it down like, I don't know if I can continue. Because there is God's wrath in here. There is God's anger. There's God's broken heart. And you need to see it from that perspective. Whenever you're hearing about God's wrath, like, oh my gosh, uh, we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. He's going to burn me to the ground. And whenever we're thinking about God as an angry father, we're missing the point altogether. He's conveying and emoting his emotions of his broken heart towards his lost children. Chapter 2, verse 14 says it this way. Therefore, I am going to allure her. So how does God get us back? Does he get us back by thumping us with the Bible? Does he get us back by making us feel guilty? Does he get us back by manipulation and torture? And he doesn't. What does it say? Therefore, I am going to allure her. He's going to woo his children. He's going to woo you back. He's, he's going to use kindness. He's going to kill you with kindness. Going to allure her, I will lead her into the desert, and I will speak tenderly to her. Therefore, I will give her back her vineyards, the things that have been taken, the, the prosperity, the joy. The vineyard represents joy. And I will make the valley of Achor, the valley of despair, a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my what? My master, right? This is an important point to think. You'll no longer call me my master. You will call me my husband. Because what we're talking about here is highly relational, God, his intent, his desire is to be highly relational. And again, the illustration is of a marriage between a man and a woman. This is the identity that God's pushing us into. Not an identity of master and servant. No, the identity is husband and wife. If you ever think that God is mean and vindictive and a bad boss, your identity is all screwed up. You're functioning from a master-slave perspective and not from a husband-wife perspective or a child-father perspective. I will remove the names of the Baals from their lips. No longer will their names be evoked. In that day, I will make a covenant with them, with their beasts of the field and with the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. Again, we're getting into God's heart. It's God's will. He's going to take away all the drama. He's going to take away all of our insecurities, all of our fears. He's going to lead us into a valley of safety. 19. I will betroth to you to me forever. God wants to marry you forever. There's no prenup here. 
I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. You will acknowledge the Lord. Verse 23, I will show my love to the one I called, not my love. Meaning he's saying, okay, I said that I was mad, but I'm telling you, I love you. I will say to those who called, not my love, my people. You are my people. Amen? He, we are his people. And they will say, you are my God. He is saying this about the Israelites who have completely lost their way. They have completely lost their identity and who they are. They have become more Canaanite than they have become Israelite. We know this by fact, actually. The archaeological remains show it. The, the Israelites almost completely assimilated into the Canaanite Moabite culture. There was a moment in Numbers 25 when this took place. Uh, God's people are kind of getting wandered around. Moses is with them. They're kind of trying to go into the desert. And the enemy of God assigns an evil prophet to curse them. Do you guys know this story of, of Balaam? Okay, so the evil prophet is trying to curse God's people. He's up on top of a mountain trying to curse them, and he can't curse them, and God shuts his mouth. Like, cursing's not working with, with this. But do you know what works? Our idols. He can't, he can't defeat God's people with curses, and so he defeats God's people with temptation. And we don't quite, I mean... I'm sure you don't know people that are worshiping wooden idols these days. Maybe you do. It's Claremont. Um, um, so idol worship isn't necessarily a thing that we deal with tangibly in our culture. But I'll tell you this. Idol worship is alive and well. We just don't have the little wooden objects that we bow down to. Now, we bow down to other things like, you know, the stock market or that big giant bronze bull that's, a, that's on New York Stock Exchange. These are the things that we worship these days. Or we bow down to the idols of sexuality. We have a highly sexualized culture these days. We, don't even, we can't tell heads or tails between our sexuality. We're all confused about everything. So the Baals were these gods. Our gods are the gods of old. Nothing has changed. It's just the name. Baal is this fertility god. He's like Zeus, rides around on a bull, throws lightning bolts, makes your crops grow, makes you fertile. Like he's a really cool god to worship. You have a fun time with Baal. Like he's party god. And his name is actually, you can, you can tack things on to party God. So you can, you can all, you know, the Lord of the party, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of, you know, my money. Like you just, you, he can be the God of whatever you want him to be. And when this prophet is cursing, he hack, he, the curses don't work. God shuts his mouth. He sends them the temptation of the Baals, and they fall to sexual sin. That's where, they, that's where they blow it. And the place where they blow it, and it's mentioned here in chapter 7 in, in Hosea, is the Baal of Peor. Now, you know what this God is? It's the God of the opening, the Lord of the opening, of that very small opening. 
it's just a little tiny foothold, meaning that the Israelites were doing really good, but they thought that they had room for one tiny little sin. They thought they had room for one expression of immorality. They thought they could get away with it. They thought that God would understand that they need this. And it's like a slippery slope. Did you guys know that sin is a slippery slope? We just let one little thing in and then we begin to justify it. I don't know. Oh, what's your sin? Is it gossip? Like, well, gossip is not a sin. That can't be that bad. I thought you were talking about sexual sin, the really bad stuff. Let's talk about murder. Let's talk about all the other horrible things. Well, I I read Romans. Once you get into Romans this week, you're going to be like, oh, no. Like, that God's putting, like, lying and gossip and bad attitudes in the same category with all the other big boys. The Baal of Peor, the God of that opening, that small opening, that the hole in your, the hole in your umbrella, it's going to let a little bit in. It's a slippery slope. Again, they partied a little bit too much. They thought that they could get away with it. But as they continued, this one little opening, it, it led to a floodgate of sin. And by the time Hosea is writing this, they're sacrificing humans. They're doing all kinds of horrible, detestable things, and God's not okay with it. God of that, that open door. The problem, so two kind of two major points. The first point I already hit, I already touched upon is that when God's people are unfaithful to him, he feels it. Like it affects him. Like God is constant, he is sovereign, he's never gonna change, but he feels the weight of injustice and sin. All of them. From mass murder to the little white lie, God feels it all. That's the, that, we got to get this into our heads. So I know when we're dealing with everyday life and you're feeling the pain, you're feeling the weight, and you're, the only thing that you can think about is you, I'm going to challenge you right now, this is your take home, to empathize with what God feels when we betray him. That's the point. We need to empathize with God. Second thing is, like, by the way, these points don't dovetail together. Just if you want continuity, there's no continuity in this message. <laughs> so, but the other thing that I want you to, to think about and take home is identity crisis. There's a major identity crisis going on in this story of Hosea. The story really is, it's about God's broken heart, but it's also about a loss of identity. It is the identity of God's people who are supposed to be, and we will see this in the New Testament, they're supposed to be the pure and spotless bride of Christ. Maybe in this story, it should be that the wife is faithful, but she's not. She's not because she's lost her way. She's lost her identity as daughter of Zion. She's now become, I don't want to say it too many times, but she's now become a prostitute. She's lost her identity. The, the thing that we got to think about, I'm gonna, we're going to work on this in the next couple of weeks, is are, are we losing our identity? I think that as a culture, we are. 
We don't know who we are anymore. We don't know what we are. We don't even know what sexual orientation we have. We don't even know what gender we are. Like, it's really confusing, and we need to talk about it. We need to flesh this thing out. And when I go after some of these issues in the next couple of weeks, it's, I'm going to be preaching to the choir. Everybody's probably going to agree with me that's sitting in this room. They're like, yeah, you preach it, Pastor Josh. You let, them, let those sinners have it. They don't, you let those Zs and Zers, you let them have it. Okay? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about our culture and our society, but I'm also more concerned about where we are and our identity. So before we go after other people's identities, we need to take a good hard look in the mirror and take a look at our identity and what we are identifying ourselves with. It's just a very simple idea is what's in your eye? How big is your log? Can you go there with me? Let's just take a hard look at our identity. What's making us who we are? Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? And does your life reflect it? If our life reflects our true identity in Christ, your kids will be like, oh my gosh, I I can't wait to have a marriage like that someday. Oh my gosh, I can't, I want to model my life after that believer who's walking with the Lord, who hasn't compromised, who's not angry, who's not judgmental, but is loving, compassionate, and kind. That's when we're doing this thing right, when people are attracted to the kindness of God that rests inside of our souls, that's emanating out of us. That's how we know when we're doing it right, when our identity is centered in Christ. When people are attracted to the, why this is going to sound new age. When people are attracted to the God that lives inside of you. Let me make a point. You're not God. Okay, just making that clear. You're not God, but the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have a God inside of you, and people will be attracted to it if you are stewarding it and if you are partnering with the Holy Spirit well. So, identity. Do you know who you are and whose you are? All right. And then finally, I got to wrap her up. I know I gave you those two points, but here's the, here's the number one thing. This is the most important take home. Is that in this process that we go through to connect to God, to walk the walk, to be discipled, to follow his ways, to seek after justice, to seek after righteousness, to get ourselves right in front of a holy God, this process that we go through. Um, In the midst of that process, can you find the God that shows up. My conviction is that God will give each and every one of you an encounter, a God moment, a God spirit experience. During this season, this coming year, this coming month, as we're maybe dealing through some hard things, do you know that God is 
that he's kind, that he is alluring you into the desert to speak kind words to you. And he, he, does, he shows his love and expresses his love in these moments. I want you to have one. Whether it is a serendipity, coincidental moment where a bride walks out of a door when you're thinking about a bride, when you're in the city of Canaan, or whether God just gives you an outpouring of his love where you feel the love of God just pour over your whole being or whether you get the small voice of God. God is the one who calls you in. This is probably going to be the biggest challenge of the year is recognizing and seeing his voice. He, uh, he speaks to us in little whispers in our everyday life. When we find ourselves in the midst of pain and hitting rock bottom, when we turn to the Lord, it seems as if he's screaming. His frequency hasn't changed one bit. It's our perspe- perception of him that's changed. I, be open to where God is and what he's doing and recognizing that he's the one that is drawing us into intimacy. He's the one that's going to be giving us hope during a hopeless situation. He's the one that has our identity in eternal spaces. He knows exactly who you are and how you can be. He's got it all figured out for you. He, is, he wants to speak life into your relationships and into your personality. He wants to bring the newness of life into you. He's got good plans for you. He's got better plans for you than you think that you have for yourself. He's that good. He's a good and loving Heavenly Father. All right, uh, Sasha and the band, if you guys could come up to the front. And if you're wondering, we will be doing communion because I didn't get a clear answer. And if you don't get a clear answer on on asking God something, then you just need to do the last thing that God told you to do. And so the last thing that God told me to do in the area of communion was to take communion, and that was a year ago, and nothing's changed, so we're going to do it again. Amen? Amen? I know that makes a lot of you happy. In the big middle of the book of Hosea, we get, and again, if you read it too fast, you're going to miss it, we get the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, I know you understand the big metaphor, the big illustration, but here's the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. This is the fun part. He has torn us to pieces. Okay, why would the Lord want to tear you to pieces? Why would he want to dismantle you? To build you right back up again. He has torn us to pieces. But he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Okay, so the only reason why God would tear you to pieces, the only reason why he would injure you, is because you have got calloused scales of sin attached to you. You have chains that are embedded into your very fibers, and he's got to break that stuff out. Amen? Amen. And when he 
tears you to pieces, and when he injures you, it hurts so bad. But the next day it feels so good because you're free and you're clean. But he will bind up your wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us. This is a prophetic statement of the cross of Jesus Christ, of Jesus dying on that cross, descending into Hades, ministering there, being resurrected on the third day to revive us and to restore us. And this is what we're celebrating in the Eucharist. His body has been brought to us so that we will have a proper identity in the body of Christ and nowhere else. This is where your true identity lies. It does not rely on your job. It does not reside in the government. It does not reside in culture. They can't tell you who you are. They like to tell you who you are, but they're a bunch of liars. The truth is that God's the only one who can tell you who you are because he's the one that created you. And when we take part of the body of Christ, we are pushing ourselves into his identity. Receive the body of Christ for the restoration of your identity. From my perspective, the things that Israel did in this story, the things that Ephraim did, are so bad that they're unforgivable. And yet God is faithful. He never gives up. He's never going to give up on Israel. And he's never going to give up on you. And he made a way, and it is in this cup. Everything that you have done that's been detestable has been forgiven because of this cup. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of innocent blood. This is the fulfillment of Israel returning to the Lord as a wife that is faithful. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And it is our identity to be pure and spotless the perfect bride and the only way that we can be the perfect bride is by drinking this cup that washes away all of our sins and makes us pure receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins
You want to have a good year? I want to have a good year. Let's invite God into 2022. Let's invite him in. Let's see what God can do. Let's allow God to bless us this coming year. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, to be gracious towards you, to turn towards you in your times of need, to revive you, to restore you, and to fill your home with peace and love. God bless you guys. Have a great year. You have perfect attendance. Good job. See you next week. God bless.